some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. As far as the official story went, there was nothing suspicious about the death of Marshall Field Jr., but that didn't stop the rumors from spreading. Granted, the official story seemed a wee bit off. Announced by his father, the department store founder Marshall Field, that story suggested that the younger Field had accidentally shot himself while cleaning a gun at home. That seemed unlikely for two reasons, from timeless tales. Police did not believe the gun used could have been discharged accidentally. Not only that, but Field Jr. was known to have been troubled. The generally accepted conclusion was that Marshall Field Jr. had died by suicide. But there was another rumor, too, one that in 1905 reverberated because it hit on so many of the era's taboos. In that theory of events... Marshall Field Jr. had been shot by a Spanish girl in the Everly Club, a notorious house in the city. He was supposed to have been spirited back home with the connivance of police and his father to avoid the scandal that would have followed if he had died on the club premises. It was probably nonsense, and while the two so-called Scarlet Sisters who ran the Everly Club were sure the scandal would pass, the truth is that whatever their brothel's culpability, the rumor that it was connected with Field Jr.'s death would mark the beginning of the end of the most infamous quote-unquote whorehouses in American history. The Everly Club, founded in Chicago just after the turn of the 20th century by sisters Ada and Mina, wasn't your typical house of ill repute, and that was the whole point. Ada and Mina had been born with the surname Sims in February 1864 and July 1866, respectively. The two hailed from Virginia and seemed joined at the hip from childhood. Though both were conventionally attractive with patrician features, and although they came from respectable families, they clearly had little interest in fulfilling the traditional roles of womanhood that their parents likely expected of them. Those parents, by the way, were first cousins Montgomery and Virginia Madison Sims. The first child born to the couple was named Lula, followed two years later by Ada, then two years more by Mina. Two more younger siblings would follow, though one, a sister named Willie, died young, likely one of the many illnesses that abounded in the late 19th century. Influenza, scarlet fever, maybe tuberculosis. The other sibling, a brother, was given to an aunt after matriarch Virginia died around the same time as Willie. Older sister Lula died young as well. She passed in 1881, when Ada and Mina were just 17 and 15 years old. Mina later told a biographer that after Lula's death, quote, I wanted to kill myself, but Ada wouldn't let me, end quote. Now, a lot of the details supposedly surrounding Ada and Mina's childhoods are probably straight-up fiction. It was easier in their day to conceal backstories, and Ada and Mina had a habit of making up stories to suit their needs. 
At some points, they claimed to hail from Kentucky. At others, they said they'd grown up in Indiana. It's possible they both married young, maybe even a pair of brothers. But documentation is spotty, and once the women became world-renowned madams, they changed both their names and their birth years, making their origin stories even tougher to confirm. As author Karen Abbott wrote in her book Sin in the Second City, quote, there are, in short, a dozen missing years in the sisters' lives, end quote. Apologies for the rough audio. I spent about three years in the, in the book researching them, and I still don't know if I know the exact truth. This is Abbott giving a talk about her book in a video posted by the Forum Network. They knew exactly how many years to shave off their ages and get away with it. Uh, they were very savvy, and they also reinvented their histories and, and sort of de- deleted all of the bad things that happened in their past and, and presented themselves as these upstanding aristocratic women. That might sound at odds with their occupations as brothel runners, but Ada and Mina weren't your typical madams. According to the most reliable sources, in Virginia, they had indeed started as debutantes, raised on a plantation operated by some 20 enslaved people. They'd started their careers in Omaha, possibly after fleeing violent marriages, though we don't know for sure. They said they entered the sex work industry with the goal of elevating it. They wanted to run a place that was classy, staffed with only the most beautiful, charming, and well-read ladies they could find. They kept doctors on hand to ensure the women were healthy. They booted workers who behaved in ways they found uncouth, say by drugging a John's drink, which was a fairly common practice in brothels of the day. They also charged a lot of money. As Abbott wrote, quote, Their entree into the madam business was a fortuitous accident. Two proper Victorian ladies who decided that creating a fantasy for others was better than pretending to live in one. End quote. After their apprenticeship of sorts in Omaha, the sisters landed on Chicago as the ideal location for the brothel they intended to open. And the spot seemed perfect because, for starters, it was such a booming city at this point. It also had designated vice areas, and its most prominent brothel runner was looking to get out, meaning that there would be an opening for the sisters to take over. Once they decided on Chicago, they needed a name. They shed their real family name, Sims, in part because they did still have living relatives in Virginia who probably wouldn't have been keen on their business venture. They said they landed on the word Everly because that's how a grandmother used to sign her letters, as in, Everly yours. To class it up even more, however, the sisters changed the spelling to end in L-E-I-G-H, and once they opened their location on Dearborn Street, they tacked on the word club, to further delineate themselves from the other brothels in the area. Others had names like Madame Leo's or The Why Not. Then, a few blocks away, there was the oh-so-appealing-sounding Bedbug Row. The Everly Club was designed from the start to outshine and outsparkle the competition in the red-light district known as the Levee. The Levy District was this sort of cesspool of block after block of five-cent brothels where madams treated their girls as disposable commodities. You know, they kept a whipper on staff. They didn't care if the girl was infected with syphilis. She went to work anyway. They kept a doctor on staff to a charlatan doctor who would sort of forge the reports. You know, they, they kept in mind that these girls would probably be very short, you know, quick turnover. These girls would be dead within five years, and that's how they treated them. 
Ada and Mina took a different approach. For starters, the bordello they secured in the year 1900 was nice to begin with, costing some $50,000 at the time. Money that the sisters said they'd inherited, but was more likely a combination of Omaha brothel savings and some silent business partners. Once they bought the place, they made it even posher. The club was spread over two addresses, 2131 and 2133 South Dearborn Street. These were basically two separate but adjoining mansions with a total of 50 rooms. Half of the location had already been operating as a brothel, and its proprietor was looking to retire. While an existing workforce of so-called sporting girls was offered to Ada and Mina, they declined, opting to hire a new batch of women altogether. They had a vision of what they wanted the Everly Club to be, and the women who had already been working there just did not match what they had in mind. Consequently, the Everly sisters gave their girls couture gowns, they fed them gourmet food, they tutored them in the poetry of Longfellow. One of the Everly Club's favorite clients said, you know, Minute, Madam Minute, that's educating the wrong, the wrong end of a whore. <laughs> but um, but they, they thought it was important for these girls to, to actually be treated as valuable investments and to, and to elevate themselves and, and to become valued, respected members of society who were making $100 a week when the shop girl was Treating the women well seemed to work. The Everly Club soon had a waiting list of women wanting to work there. The courtesans they hired had to prove that they were at least 18 years old to even interview for a gig. And unlike a lot of other brothels, they were repeatedly assured, honestly, that they were free to leave for any reason without penalty. Ada and Mina spent tens of thousands of dollars upgrading the interior of their stone face location, too. Inside were ornate wooden staircases, intricately themed bedrooms, and luxurious baths. There were rooms with titles like the Japanese Throne Room, the Oriental Music Room, and the Rose Parlor Room. Photographs from the era show every inch of each room was thoughtfully decorated, Even the high ceilings were often adorned with fancy tin tiles and elegant chandeliers. This all cost money, of course, and as such, patronizing the Everly Club was not cheap. Men paid a $50 entrance fee, ostensibly for the privilege of dining in the club's Pullman Buffet. Considering that three-course meals might cost 50 cents in this era at a decent restaurant, that $50 was steep, Abbott wrote. I mean, it's like almost $2,000 in today's money. But this was the point. Everything about the Everly was supposed to be upscale, classy, desirable. While terms like whore and harlot were thrown around a lot in the era, Mina and Ada called their sporting girls butterflies. They were concerned with propriety and decorum and with doing what they did better than anyone else in the world. And they did. They did accomplish that. They were the best madams in the world by far. Anybody who was anyone in Chicago or who passed through Chicago came to the Everly Club. There was Theodore Dreiser. There was the poet Edgar Lee Masters. There was the famous black boxing champion Jack Johnson. There was John Barrymore. Granted, not everything that happened at the Everly Club was picture perfect. After all, there are plenty of rich people who are horribly unseemly. Some men behaved like pigs. Some butterflies used opium over the sisters' objections. When the Everly sisters uncovered that kind of behavior, they typically dealt with it swiftly. 
Firing workers wasn't cumbersome because the club always had a waiting list of women willing to swoop in, and Mina and Ada considered the club's reputation too valuable to risk allowing in problematic panders, as customers were called. For the most part, the Everly Club was the type of place that greased the right palms, employed the right girls, and followed rules of etiquette well enough that it seemed basically untouchable, even though the business conducted there was technically illegal. If police were looking to bust a sex worker, they weren't quick to target the club. But this, in turn, made the club less than beloved by other bordellos in the district, and the owners of those places were happy to point fingers at the Everly sisters whenever something sinister happened in the levee, even if it meant accusing Mina and Ada of covering up a murder. Now, some of you listeners are probably too young to remember much about the Marshall Fields department store. And if I'm being honest, I have mixed feelings about that because I have mortality issues and I'm old enough to remember it quite well. Marshall Fields, emphasis there on the possessive S, was an upscale Chicago-based business that started as a dry goods supplier but evolved into a national chain of department stores. Its founder actually wasn't Marshall Field, but rather a guy named Potter Palmer, who, in 1852, launched the thing as P. Palmer & Company. Four years later, a young entrepreneur got involved, and in 1864, the business was renamed Farwell Field & Co., which went through a few incarnations before finally becoming Marshall Field & Co. in 1881. Marshall Field was a cold-eyed, merciless money-making machine who skimped and slaved his way to wealth and power, almost unequaled in his time. Timeless tales again. In the process, he endured an existence of miserable loneliness. He built a fortune of $160 million, today in the billions, became the biggest taxpayer in the country, and alienated his wife and family. His store was one of the greatest in America, with sales of $50 million a year. He was Chicago's largest landowner, His income was $700 an hour. To be clear, Field was lonely by choice. He was actually married and had a son and a daughter, but apparently he didn't like spending much time with his family. He figured it was enough that he'd bought them a fancy house that was the first in the city to have electric light. His family seemed to feel differently. Increasingly, his wife and children spent most of their time abroad. As unionizing became more popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Field got more agitated and withdrawn. After his estranged wife died in 1896, his children wanted little to do with him, especially not the son who was named after him. Marshall Field Jr. seemed a sad fellow. As an adult, he got married and fathered three children, whom he was able to provide well for thanks to his pedigree, but he seemed perpetually lonely. He was a regular at the Everly Club, often stumbling in too drunk to even, you know, perform with any of the sex workers. He just wanted the company. One night in November 1905, Field's family nurse and butler reported that they heard a gunshot from the library of his Prairie Avenue mansion and rushed to find Field Jr. with a fatal wound to his belly. The 38-year-old supposedly said, I shot myself accidentally. He was rushed to the hospital, where he died five days later. 
The tale the family tried to spin was that Junior had somehow dropped the gun at an angle that allowed it to slam into an armchair and hit the trigger. This was so outlandish, though, that a Chicago Daily News reporter decided to test whether it was even possible. As Abbott wrote, the reporter, quote, took an identical unloaded revolver and hurled it several times to the floor. Not once did the thing go off, end quote. Suicide was deemed shameful and scandalous, so Junior's family denounced that rumor, which soon gave way to an even bawdier one. That Field had gone to the Everly Club the night of his death, had been shot by a sex worker, and then was transported back to his home on the orders of Mina and Ada to keep their business from suffering. There's no reason to think that tale is true, but the rumor was one of the first times the club's reputation took a hit, but it wasn't the last. Next came allegations that the club, along with other levy brothels, had kidnapped some of the workers it employed. Those charges came from a few different angles. As Abbott explained, There was a minister by the name of Ernest Bell who who started a thing called the Midnight Mission, and we preach outside the Everly Club every night and hand out pamphlets where men's heads were rotting from syphilis and thinking this would dissuade them from going to the brothel didn't work. But he he stood outside every night and just prayed for these fallen girl souls and, and, you know, wrote these really weepy poems about how he's seen enough there to make the stones vomit. Then there was a lawyer, Clifford Rowe an ambitious Chicago state's attorney whom Abbott described as... The exact opposite of Ernest Bell. He was a manipulative, cunning man who was only in this to sort of advance his own political agenda. He's the one who was really responsible for the white slavery scare. Rowe wrote articles for newspapers and magazines, as well as best-selling books, about girls stolen from the streets, drugged, raped, and thus ruined in the eyes of Victorian society who were then sold into the brothels, usually for between $50 and $200, depending on their age and attractiveness. Some of the stories were no doubt true, but there was a bit of a clickbait element to these stories, too. It was sort of like 19th century terror alerts, and people were just terrified about this. Preaching outside of the Everly Club became a nightly occurrence for years, but it didn't bother Ada and Mina much. For starters, they really didn't have girls working for them against their will. Some brothels in the Levy District might have, but the sisters prided themselves on being a place where women actually wanted to work. Second, they both made and paid enough money to police and politicians that they felt certain they were protected. For example, Mina and Ada paid two politicians and fellow brothel runners named Bathhouse John and Hanky Dink. Every year, the two would throw a huge, opulent, alcohol-soaked ball. People would just come to this thing every year and celebrate their debauchery with impunity. And they would, you know, harlots dressed up like nuns, uh, harlots dressed up like five-year-old boys, guzzling champagne from pails, you know, wading knee-deep in beer, stabbing each other with hat pins, which was like, it was a fabulous time. And this all netted $30,000 for Bathhouse John and Hanky Dink. In short, good times. The sisters' main nemeses were, perhaps not surprisingly, other madams. Several brothel-running women in the district were members of a group called the Friendly Friends, which might be my favorite moniker ever. The group was a sort of informal union where the madams could gather, drink tea, and talk business. They snubbed the Everly sisters by not inviting the club owners to join the Friendly Friends, 
and then were pissed off when it became clear that the sisters did not care. Of that group, the sisters' biggest foe was a madam named Vic Shaw, who ran Shea Shaw and had been considered the queen of the Levy district until she was displaced by Ada and Mina. And she, you know, was not an uptown girl, and she did not appreciate being showed what uptown was. She hated the Everly sisters, in fact, so much that she tried to frame them twice for murder. The Marshall Field Jr. incident was the first time. The second came five years later with the death of another rich heir, this one named Nathaniel Ford Moore. Nat, as he was called, was the only child of Laura and James Hobart Moore, the latter of whom was a wealthy businessman whose early ventures eventually led to the founding of the Nabisco Corporation. Nat was a pretty famous guy in his own right, having competed as an American golfer in the 1904 Summer Olympics. He didn't place individually, but he was part of the American team that won gold. By the time he showed up at the Everly Club on January 8, 1910, Nat had been married for five years to a woman named Helen Fargo, heiress to the Wells Fargo fortune. And the guy had never really worked for a living. He apparently planned to start soon, saying he was, quote, tired of loafing, end quote. But he sure knew how to spend money. This was a man who got a gift of $100,000 on his 21st birthday. Long story short, he was an Everly regular. On this night, though, something about him seemed off. His eyes were glassy, and while there was plenty of wine going around, that didn't seem to account for his demeanor. Mina Everly wondered if one of her butterflies, a girl named Katie, had maybe slipped him some morphine, which was against house rules. Katie was suspected of having dealings with a morphine guy earlier, and Minna approached her and confronted her about this. And Katie gave her lip, and Minna immediately dismissed her and said, I've had enough of you, get out of here, and where does she go but up the street to Vic Shaw's house? Nat was as annoyed as Katie was by Mina's meddling, so he, too, joined the newly fired butterfly next door at Shea Shaw. Nat soon went to sleep entwined with three women. As in, he went to literal sleep. He was in no condition for anything else. And the next morning, those women awoke to find the man in their bed was dead. Panic naturally ensued. It was not good for business to have a nationally known rich dude die in your bordello. Vic Shaw apparently concocted a plan to move Nat's body from her place into the basement furnace of the Everly Club. The plan might have worked, too, but Katie, the newly fired butterfly, heard about the plan. Here's Abbott reading from Sin in the Second City. The phone rang inside the Everly Club. It took a minute and a moment to distinguish the voice on the other end. Words choppy with rage, each syllable an exclamation. Katie. They're framing you, the harlot whisper screamed. They've got a dead body at Charles, and they're going to plant it in your furnace. It's Nat Moore. It's a dirty trick, and I won't let him do that to you. The line went dead. Minna accessed that pocket of her brain where her thoughts were calculated and stripped of impulse, where she was most like Ada. This was Vic Shaw, she reminded herself. Jealous, inept Vic Shaw, who had already tried to frame her for murder and failed. A pathetic, mediocre madam who couldn't influence the mayor or turn bathhouse John and Hinky Dink against her and Ada or whip the entire country into such a religious frenzy that it lost all ability to reason. A madam doomed to remain relevant only to herself. Minna would call a trusted lieutenant, walk down the street, and make sure Vic Shaw understood that this battle had been decided long ago, and it was the Everleys who had won. 
Mina's quick thinking to bring a cop down to Shea Shaw straight away thwarted Shaw's frame-up plan. Confronted by the officer, the sex workers confessed what had happened, that gajillionaire Nat Moore had died after a long night of drinking and maybe more. A Wire story that ran in newspapers nationwide the next day included the subhead, may have been drugged. It read, quote, The police are said to be working on the theory that a drug often used to keep liberal spenders awake in resorts so that they would continue to buy drinks freely may have been the cause of Mr. Moore's death. The drug is not considered to have a serious effect, but sometimes the application of it has unexpected results. When Moore failed to revive, it is said the physician gave him two hypodermic injections of morphine, end quote. A subsequent autopsy determined that Nat Moore had died due to dilation of the heart, a.k.a. natural causes. Tests on his stomach contents revealed no drugs in his system. That didn't matter much to the rumor mill, though, that the quote-unquote white slavery narrative from players we mentioned earlier, the Minister Bell and State Attorney Clifford Rowe, was in full swing, helped fuel public outrage. Editorials called on Chicago to shutter its red-light district once and for all. Officials weren't quite ready to do that, but they did decide that maybe one of the brothels should be held accountable for something, and much to the Everly sisters' chagrin, that's how the most infamous resort in America landed in the crosshairs. To be clear, brothels weren't legal in Chicago. They were tolerated. The general thinking was that segregation was better than attempts to outlaw vice, so the levy was set up as a red-light district where otherwise illegal activities, particularly gambling and sex work, would be allowed to flourish, so long as the business owners paid off the right people, followed some fairly lax rules, and generally stayed out of avoidable trouble. Advocates figured sex workers might provide an outlet for would-be rapists, for example. This is Rich Lindbergh, author of Chicago by Gaslight. The huge district encompassed the Levy Vice District and its 2,000 or so prostitutes residing in door-to-door houses of ill repute, lining the side streets off of 22nd and Dearborn, the richest ward and police district in the United States it was. The first ward boundaries extended along South State Street, also You're close to City Hall between Congress and Polk Street, where the Harold Washington Library stands today. The region was called Whiskey Row for its many disreputable saloons, dime museums, and carnival attractions. Inside the Lone Star Inn, the famous Mickey Finn knockout drug came into prominence. The debate about the district was fierce. Plenty of people believed that there was no way to outlaw people doing these things, so it made a lot more sense to know where it was happening to at least keep an eye on things. The theory of the Gilded Age was that if the politicians could control this kind of activity in one section of the city, in theory, it wouldn't spread into the better residential areas of the city. That didn't exactly prove true, but of all the Levy's resorts, it's fair to say that the Everly Club was probably the least problematic. Their whole argument was that if we elevate the industry and and remove the stain from a stigmatized profession, nobody's going to have a problem with it. Everything they did was with this in mind. 
They advertised by way of classy brochures that pictured none of their butterflies, but rather their ornately decorated rooms. The workers skipped the flimsy chemises popular in other houses and instead wore fancy gowns. They read poetry and took lessons on manners and elocution. And as far as we know, no one died at the club, despite the rumors attempted by Vic Shaw and other competitor madams. Still, on October 24th, 1911, the headlines blared, Chicago Mayor Orders Everly Club Closed. The mayor at the time was Carter Harrison II, whose father had previously served five terms, spanning from 1879 to 1887, and then again in 1893 before... An assassin's bullet cut him down at the close of the World's Fair. The elder Mayor Harrison was a... And liberal proponent of what they called the wide open city, tolerant of the social vices, and the sanctioning of localized politics through powerful neighborhood saloon bosses. A few years after the elder Harrison's assassination, just before the turn of the 20th century, Carter Harrison II became mayor. He initially tended to think like his dad. He wasn't overly concerned about vice districts. He figured they served a purpose. But the public pressure was mounting. The Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act, passed nationally in 1910 and criminalized transporting any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose. A lot of times it was misused, as PBS reported. Quote, While designed to combat forced prostitution, the law was so broadly worded that courts held it to criminalize many forms of consensual sexual activity, end quote. State Attorney Clifford Rowe had fought numerous high-profile court battles, accusing various brothels of kidnapping, tricking, or otherwise forcing women to work as sex workers in the district. And the Everly Club's success, plus its seemingly beyond-reproach reputation, ultimately worked against it. It had become the most famous brothel in America. It was synonymous with Chicago. When Mayor Harrison visited other towns, he was inevitably asked about its red light district, and nearly every query seemed to be centered around the Everly. He decided to make an example of the place, saying, quote, This was a show house from one end of the United States to another. I am opposed to Chicago being advertised as a vice center, end quote. When the order to close came down, Mina and Ada at first assumed it would be short-lived. They gave their butterflies their blessings to find temporary work elsewhere, and then they took a trip overseas, promising they would recall the girls once they returned. But they never did. Newspapers crowed about the closure, taking credit for providing the publicity that led to the shuttering. In 1936, the Chicago Tribune wrote, quote, It was publicity that made the Everly sisters, because they were remarkable for their mode of dress and life, because they affected a certain distinction in manners, because they courted the patronage of the select, they shrewdly built up a capital of advertising. The Everly Club was known in almost every slumbering hamlet. The out-of-town buyer could return to his hometown with a salacious little morsel for his cronies. The city man slipped in and out and hoped he wouldn't get caught. But the publicity which the Scarlet Sisters so shrewdly originated also built the bonfire. Its heat did not drive them out alone. 
it also drove out the whole wretched industry. End quote. That's sort of true, though the effect wasn't immediate. In fact, when the Everly sisters left, it actually seemed like they took with them the little bit of class the area might have had. Things got way worse before they got quote-unquote better. Soon, the city was overrun by organized crime, first run by Big Jim Colosimo, who was shot dead in his restaurant in 1920, paving the way for his successor, Al Capone, and his Chicago outfit. If you want to know how that reign ended, feel free to check out the St. Valentine's Day Massacre episode of Crimes of the Centuries. The succinct version is that Big Jim's fall, coupled with prohibition and the immeasurable rise of violent crime that came with it, turned Chicago into exactly the kind of place that the Everly's critics worried it would become. As for the Everly sisters, they had amassed a fortune during the heyday of their extravagant club, And as such, they lived out the rest of their lives comfortably as ladies of leisure. A writer named Irving Wallace tracked them down in 1945, living under the surname Lester in New York City. At first, Mina and Ada swore they were not the Everly sisters, but rather that a pair of madams in Chicago had co-opted their names. Eventually, they dropped the act and reminisced with Wallace about the golden era of Chicago's red-light districts. In 1988, Wallace turned his chats with the sisters into a novella called The Golden Room. Mina, the younger of the two, died in 1948. Ada lived a dozen years longer, dying in 1960 at the age of 96. To research this story, I read Karen Abbott's Sin in the Second City, Madams, Ministers, Playboys, and The Battle for America's Soul. I also read contemporary news coverage, watched a couple of Gilded Age documentaries, and listened to talks given by authors Abbott and Rich Lindbergh. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 